Welcome to the Soul's Way podcast. This is your host, Emily Ann Brandt. I am a proud First Nations Mohawk author, speaker, and mentor here to meet you at the intersection of personal development and decolonization. I truly believe that when we see ourselves and one another, mind, body, emotion, and most of all, soul and spirit, we can break through systematic, ancestral, and generational ways of being that we came here to disrupt and rise above. We can lean into the ways that heal our spirits. I know we can do this through honest conversations, radical responsibility, and healing together in community. Through my stories and the incredible conversations with some truly amazing guests, my hope is that you leave each episode with a more open heart and that you feel emboldened in your medicine and your voice, knowing your ripple effect matters. Our ripple effect matters. Thank you for being here. Let's dive in. Hello, friends. Welcome back. You are in for such a treat today. I am sitting down with two women that I just continually learn so much from. You've heard me recommending their podcast, and now that I am just about halfway through it, I can strongly recommend their book as well. Real Friends Talk About Race, Bridging the Gaps Through Uncomfortable Conversations by Yizu P. Mukan Habana and Hannah Summerhill, who join us today. If you've been following me for some time now, or if you're in any of my programs, working with me in in one way or another, I'm sure you've heard me just absolutely gush about the kinswomen. I cannot say enough good things. And so I was so excited when they agreed to sit down with us to have this conversation today for The Soul's Way. And I could go on and on about how incredible it is, but I might as well just shut up now, (laughs) play the episode, and let you soak this in. You may want to listen more than once. And I would invite you to please share if you learned anything, which I know you're going to, if anything resonated, landed with you, struck a chord with you, please share and send it to a friend or share it on your Instagram stories and tag myself, tag the Kinswomen, um, tag Izu, tag Hannah, and just let us know that, um, let them know that their, their words were impactful for you. Okay. So without further ado, let's dive in and enjoy. All right. Welcome to the Soul's Way podcast, everybody. I am here today with Hannah and Izu of the Kins Women. Welcome, Hannah. Welcome, Izu. How are you both today? I'm doing great. How are you? Good, good. How are you, Hannah? I'm doing really well. I'm I'm excited to be here, excited to chat with you and yeah, to share this space together. Yeah, me too. This is actually, as I was just saying hello to both of you, I'm realizing this is the first time I've interviewed two people at once. So um, I'm sure you're both used to it, though. So we'll see how this um, how this flows. But I thought we could start with just for the people listening who maybe aren't familiar with you yet or your amazing work. Would you please introduce yourselves and what the Kinswomen is all about? Yeah, Hannah, go ahead. Yeah, okay. Uh, So I'm Hannah Summerhill. My pronouns are she, her. I'm a white Jewish woman living in California. And Izu and I started the Kinswomen four years ago, and it was born from these conversations um, starting in my living room in New York in, I think, January 2019. And I'd met Izu at an event at The Wing, which was a women's co-working space in New York. They have, they have several locations, but we met at the Dumbo location 
and there was an event there one evening called Bridging the Empathy Gaps Between Women of Color and White Women. And it was a huge event, like fishbowl style. And I, as a white woman, was just went to listen and learn. But I kind of missed the point of the event, which was to have these cross-racial dialogues. And when Izu got up to speak, I was just really, it was like she was speaking directly to me because she was addressing the white women in the room who hadn't spoken up. And I really appreciated how she also acknowledged and called out the dynamics that were happening during this um, event between the white women and the women of color that were there. So her words stayed with me. And then I ran into her a couple weeks later and I said, hey, that was such a great event. I know a lot of us from there wanted to continue the conversations. And unfortunately, the wing didn't really, you know, couldn't provide the space quickly enough for us to get back in there. Because I think a lot of us who went to the event thought we need to be doing this like at least every week or, you know, once a month. So I invited her to come to my apartment. We gathered a a couple of friends. It was a small group. And then those monthly meetings just grew and grew and grew. We decided from there to start a podcast so we could bring the conversations we were having, which were so transparent and vulnerable to a wider audience. And we named it Kinswomen. And that's how that's how we started. That is so cool. I love your origin story. And I love that, um, you know, it started with kind of you being called out as as a like a white woman sitting more quietly and Izu's bravery and calling you calling you out, calling you in, whatever you want to call it. And the way you responded to that and said, okay, now what? And and then this whole kinswomen movement, business project, whatever we're going to call it, was born. I think that's really, really powerful. Um, Izud, is there anything you want to add to um, just introducing yourself or anything else you want to say about the kinswomen? Yeah, hi. So I'm Izu Pofleet Mukanhabana. I um, identify as... I am Rondon, uh, queer and also Jewish. Um, I do work with Hannah, of course, with Kinswoman, and I'm also a fellow researcher with the Tel Aviv uh, Institute. Uh, I advocate around uh, anti-Semitism um, with them and just in general, of course. Uh, intersecting things, I think, is one of the most important things for me. Um, and yeah, Kinswoman started off because I really felt as though uh, the setup of that conversation felt felt voyeuristic uh, and the white women in the room were acting like voyeurs uh, instead of participants and uh, active members in trying to figure out how to address the issue. And I think that it like reflects the continued uh, view of how white people in general feel as though they should address racism as like something that has to be um, resolved and without them being specifically be like active in that, find mm-hmm. like finding a solution to the issues without them being actively part of the 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 thinking about it and like the questioning and like internalizing the issue. And so, um, so yeah, Kinswoman was born from like from that, from basically trying to uh, layer the conversation, create um, m- more like inc- intersection in the conversation, and humanizing it specifically. Like I, I wanted to start Kinswoman because I wanted to really humanize like what the conversation were really about, 
and uh, shift the attention from uh, people of color being called in to find solution to these issues and rather focusing on white people um, making themselves the prime, like addressing yeah. solver of the issues as it should be. Obviously. Yeah, exactly. As it should be, as opposed to, oh, that's a black people problem. That's a brown people problem. That's an indigenous people problem. No, it's not. <laughs> it's a problem for all. Well, for all of us to to fix and address and heal, but especially for white people to acknowledge their role in that um, and face and face the benefits, the the settler benefits, um, the white privilege, um, the different layers, like you said, intersectionality. I'm just like, yes, yes, yes to all of this. Um, how did that go though when you started? Because you said four years ago, um, so that would have been 2019, um, before people were even kind of before most people started actively sort of demanding anti-racism education after George Floyd's murder. Um, what was that like when you first started, and how did those like living room meetings kind of progress? Were they tense? Were they um, like, yeah? What was the energy like in the room? I remember being so scared because I was like, who am I to create this space? What am I doing? And I wanted to back out and I thought, I'm going to mess up. I'm going to say the wrong thing. And I know a lot of my white friends who came felt that way too. Yeah. I can't speak for everyone in the room, but eventually, you know, there's, well, there's always, there's often an awkwardness and discomfort when we're having these conversations. And we've really tried to share with our students and our readers in our book that that's normal and it should be embraced. Izu said, like one of the first things Izu said was discomfort doesn't kill. And mm -hmm. I think discomfort can feel so threatening to us. And that really is what prevents these race dialogues and really any dialogue that's difficult or taboo from being had. So there was that to address in the beginning, but as soon as we got past the initial like 10, 15 minutes of, you know, also in the beginning, these were strangers. A lot of people didn't know each other, like people who came maybe knew just me or knew just Izu or they were friends of friends. There was discomfort. So people, a lot of white women would do what I had done, sit quietly. Um, but eventually we started to get to this place and we got in this groove where I felt like it was so transparent, so vulnerable that it felt just like the most important conversations that we could be having. And I questioned myself every step of the way as somebody who was helping to create the space for it. What am I doing? And there were times that I messed up and said things and, you know, cut people off that I shouldn't have. And, um, you know, I was still very much on my own journey, but I felt like the best way to deal with that for me was just to be transparent and vulnerable about it. And that way, hopefully my other white friends who are coming could feel that same, just feel comfort in the fact that like, yep, I don't know what I'm doing and it is uncomfortable, but we're going to do it anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's so beautiful to see that. Um, that bravery because it is it is such like you said the most important conversations that are being had it's such important work um and it is it's brave work and i hear that a lot even um for a virtual event that i host that's called the round table where i invite white coaches and coaches of the global majority um 
to come and sit around and we have this conversation about how racism shows up in the coaching industry and how colonialism has impacted it. And people who come don't even have to talk. They don't even, they just have to sit, literally like pull up a seat and listen. And people message me all the time, white people, that they're nervous to pull up a seat and they're nervous just to sit there. Um, let alone what what you um, and what you, Hannah and Izu, what you're doing is inviting people to take it even further and actually have a dialogue, have a back and forth, um, which is something I'm striving to shift the roundtable more into as well. But um, also noting that it is important to to first and foremost hear from people with the lived experiences when um, yeah when we're talking about some of the things that we we deal with and that we are tired of carrying alone, right? Um, but yeah, so you you mentioned your book. You have a book coming out. It's called Real Friends Talk About Race. And um super excited. Got it pre-ordered on Audible already. Um, and why yeah. I wanted to ask why um is it so important for friends to talk about race? Because I think most of us grew up being told like that's taboo, don't or a lot of people were told to be colorblind. Um, but why is it so important that friends specifically talk about race? Um, I'd say that uh, the the I think that I'll ex- answer my perspective and my take about how to address mm-hmm. racism and how racism has been addressed. And I think that you know when you were asking about the sit like sitting around and and like uh, getting to a point where people are exchanging. Um, for me specifically is to like shift the attention and the focus on like how the conversation are being had. So rewire how people think that they're supposed to uh, address this and also take away words like bravery from people that don't experience the oppression, (laughs) because I feel like there's, it's just, it's just, you're, you just have to face it. You don't have to experience it. And so I, I don't think that like, it's so much the word doesn't suit to me personally. I just think that it's not so much bravery, but just like accountability. And, um, and if you are willing to address things and if you are willing to, uh, to want to have a better impact, you're supposed to want to address things face on. And so writing the book, and coming from like a friendship point of view, um, personally, is that I've seen so many interracial friendships. I've seen so much interracial, like intimate relationships that ended up being um, a horrible experience for BIPOC uh, with white people because the elephant in the room is not addressed. And so uh, it's important to address things in like a specific way, like when it comes to these like conversation around race and oppression, we always like speak it from a very societal level and not on an interpersonal level. And it and these societal issues trickle down into individuals. And these individuals nurture feelings that are conscious, sometimes subconscious, um, about how they see the world and how they see you as a mind as like a person of color and so it 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 comes through in the way they're going to even see the world how they understand the world and how they're going to maintain the friendship with the person that's like BIPOC and so for me it's um I find it more interesting and more impactful to address things in such a specific way because it does have a ripple effect um and in the matter of like just having a positive impact in also the harm um 
because we live with each other every day. And I work with people and, you know, that I might work with people that are white or I might be around people that are white. And so the the chances of experiencing these things in such a specific way is greater than just like addressing it and having a conversation on like a societal level or on a governmental level or like these like big spaces that like one individual doesn't have. And also it's to uh, empower individuals to feel like, uh, it's actually into yourself that you can serve a in like in making a difference uh, for yourself though, not to save us, like not to save BIPOC. BIPOC have been um, advocating. We've been advocating for ourselves forever, and we've marched and we've spoken up, but for us and for um, specifically white women, because that's like kind of the demographic that we uh, talk to and address um, in our meetings and like just in general. And so it's so much like, it's more addressing like what has this impacted in your in yourself and like how you see the world and how you um, function in the world. And also the negative that is the interpersonal racism that might exist. Um, so that's why I was motivated in writing this book because I really wanted to address how weird it is when you're friends with someone and experience a really racist moment. And you're like, how do I grapple? How do I address? And also to restore uh, some type of like empowerment into the BIPOC community, BIPOC and Jewish community that will read the book and feeling like we have done so much work. It's up to them to do more, the work now, you know. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And thank you for that. Um, that language shift from bravery to accountability. I think that really... Um, yeah, that really stood out to me. And I'm going to rethink my words now when I'm calling calling in brave leaders. It's like, yeah, is it bravery or is it just accountability? <laughs> That's a really, really yeah. good point. Um, yeah. And this is, yeah, this is exactly why I'm I'm always learning. Um, even as an Indigenous woman, I'm obviously like light-skinned and white presenting. And it's so important for me to also listen to Black and Brown perspectives and always stay plugged in and always stay learning. And I learned so, I learn, continue to learn so much from um, your podcast, the Kinswomen podcast, because there's so much gold there. I don't know if you're still actively making episodes, but there's there's so much there. And I'm really enjoying going through. And then, um, yeah, I took your course, um, the course for anti-racist entrepreneurs, and then really excited for your book. Um, but Hannah, do you want to add anything to that question around why it's important for friends to talk about race? Definitely. I think that, like you said, the kind of like 90s, 2000s ethos from well-meaning, left-leaning white parents, I include my own in that, is to be colorblind, to not talk about race because we, and even now you hear rhetoric from people on the right side of the, the right, right political spectrum, um, that it causes more division to talk about race. But I think as people, we want to be seen in our full identities. So it's not necessarily about focusing on what makes us different, but acknowledging that because we live in a white supremacy, if we have non-white friends or coworkers or family members or intimate partners that they haven't completely experienced from the world, then white people do. Acknowledging what makes us us I think we all want to see be seen in our full humanness in friendships and if we're leaving out our identities 
especially a factor that can impact our health, our wealth, our education, how we're treated in the justice system, whether or not we experience like a level of stress due to epigenetics, microaggressions every day, we're just being willfully ignorant. So it's so important to create space to have those conversations and not just in interracial friendships and relationships, but also in white friendships and relationships, because I've lo- I've had longstanding friendships with white women whom, when I started doing this work, really faltered because this was an element of the of our relationship that had never really been present. It seems in in white friendships, why do we need to talk about these things? They don't impact us. But eventually, you know, social justice work impacts all of us. You know, the world is changing and growing. And as we age, our families grow. And it's only a matter of time before we're personally impacted. We always are, but it's like, if we, if we recognize and acknowledge that. So these conversations couldn't be more important. And um, especially in white friendships too, a lot of white people only have white friends or they have majority white friends. That doesn't mean that their conversation about race um, doesn't need to exist. It does. And again, I'm not saying it's comfortable to broach those topics. It's going to be awkward and stalty and fumbly, but the there are conversations that we truly should be having. And that's what the book provides, I think, confidence for readers for a, a framework. Um, it's a manifesto, I think, on why these conversations are so important and um, our podcast too. And yes, we have new episodes coming. One is coming out tomorrow. <laughs> I'm so glad you like the podcast as well. But yeah, um, that's really what I think, just to answer your question. Beautiful. Yeah, so true. Everything you said. And yes, love the podcast. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of my favorite takeaways, things that I've learned from both of you from your podcast and from your course. And one thing that really stood out to me from your podcast um, was on an episode where you were interviewing um, a therapist, and I, I forget his name, but he was a black man um, therapist, passionate about decolonizing therapy. And um, yes, thank you, thank you. And something you said, Izu, was like, how therapists need to like BIPOC people either need uh, we seek BIPOC therapists because we don't want to waste our time like explaining the oppression and the intergenerational trauma and the racism and you know because if that's the case then who's paying who is what you said and I was like this yes this um and it just made me think because this is the work I do with coaches and entrepreneurs as well how that's so that's so true. That's so applicable. Like if your black, brown and indigenous clients have to um, or any marginalized, oppressed clients have to waste time explaining to you why they feel the way they do instead of just having the space to be human, um, then really like you should be paying them, not the other way around. So I loved I loved that. And I just wanted to bring it up here. Thank you so much. I think that there's a there's an interview of uh, I don't remember his I think it's Denzel. I want to say it's Denzel, but I'm not sure. Denzel Washington that was like explaining about why the casting of like 
the casting had to be black for the movie that he was playing in because there are certain things that you can't explain through like just performance there's things that you understand only through culture like through like experiencing what it is to like the example he gave was a hot comb through natural black hair like that that the 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 feeling, the smell, like everything that comes from that can only be played by someone that has experienced it. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's just like a question of, you know, it's an ease that you you need in order to be able to surpass. Like I I I've been saying this a lot, but racism and like the, the greatest thing about like the, the greatest like outcome of racism, I think, is like the fact that it's so distracting it's a distract it's like it's a distractive thing and it distracts us from the speaking about things that really matter it takes away time that we need to like really unravel who we are as individuals Mm -hmm. but instead you're spending time having to explain things that like you don't want to explain like because you have other things that you really want to unwrap and then it becomes like this whole fight of um having how do I find space to just exist outside of having to explain and and that's why people find black therapists because they're black or if they're Asian uh, they need an Asian therapist or because you need that space to be able to breathe completely and not have to give a background story for everything yeah absolutely and to just be just be a human in the full wholeness of everything that makes you you outside of yeah just being having to talk about the specific like BIPOC specific issues um I know that's definitely why I sought out an Indigenous mentor um and found her found Asha Frost who's like the only one I've been able to find and she's amazing but that was so hard for me to find an Indigenous person doing what I want to do and and holding space for clients in such a way um, where most of my previous mentors were white women. And then once I realized how much decolonization work, how much reclamation work, how much healing from racism and oppression and all intergenerational trauma, all of that that I had to do, I didn't want to, um, I knew that it wouldn't wouldn't be viable for me to have to waste all my time explaining that to a white woman. I would rather just be held and seen in all my unique, all my uniqueness and all my gifts by someone who already gets it automatically but what do you suggest to because I know there's going to be a lot of white women listening saying well what do we do if we don't have the same lived experience we can't get it um then how can we hold space for people or um yeah what what like what do you want white women to know when it comes to that I want white women to understand that the work that they have to do around um, addressing racism and oppression is to reinstall the humanity that's that's like absent in white supremacy. And so by restoring that humanity, then you will be able to see others as equal or you will be able to understand when someone is like, you don't have to some you we don't have to experience exactly what someone is experiencing to 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 have compassion like or to want to like support someone or to want to like uh make space um but if you have no if you have you haven't formed some type of like humanity in regards to someone else even if you're a nice person you just have you don't naturally just see them the way they need to be seen 
And so that's why I always say that like being able to address racism and white supremacy in general is not just about reading about the harm that like BIPOC and Jewish people experience, but it's also being able to see like how much it's, it's impacted white people, like in the sense that what have you been, what has it contributed in terms of like your existence? Like how has it affected you and the way you see the world and how disconnected you are from seeing the world? And so it's it's not it's not like a specific answer. And it's unfortunately not something where I'm like, go read a book, but it's really sit with yourself and trying to figure out and trying to trying to like uh, unpack that with yourself. And it's so deep and it runs so in such a like, how do you say this? It runs it runs so deep that it's not at a point where you're going to feel like, oh, I've gotten it. But it's as every time you feel like you've graduated a, a, some type of like awareness, there's going to be something that's going to add and accept that from people that are from the group that is telling you that's weird or that's racist or that's problematic. And I think that a lot of the time white women ha struggle with that when someone's like, okay, you've been doing so much good for you, but that's that's not it like that. You've missed the point there. And accepting to hear that is going to help you, white people, white women, white people in general, be able to move forward and grow even more from the things that they they, they need to learn and grow from. I don't know if yes. that's a good answer. Oh my gosh, <laughs> was that a good answer? Oh my gosh, that was so good. I got chills when you were saying. Um, like bring back the humanity, restore the humanity that white supremacy has culture has completely removed because mm -hmm. that's, that's, yeah, that's it. That's so true. It's the humanity. And that's why I keep saying about the coaching industry too, is like, where is the humanity, even from the seemingly the most kindest mentors and people that I've worked with, they seem lovely, they seem kind mm -hmm. until I brought up issues of oppression and racism and it's not kind to be nice when it's in the name of upholding white supremacy and white comfort. That's not real kindness. That's not compassion. That's not humanity. That is saving, protecting your own comfort, putting your own needs first and the needs and putting white supremacy first, which, like you said, takes away the humanity. So I just love that. And I love that you said, like, yeah, it's I always say like it does start with education, but I agree it goes it has to go deeper than that. And it's that, yeah, that willingness to be open, understand, make peace with the fact that this is a lifelong journey for all of us. We've all been indoctrinated into, um, you know, white supremacy culture, these ways of being. It's going to take the rest of our lives to unlearn it. Um, but that is something that this cult that white supremacy culture has really created, especially for women, is this culture of perfectionism right? And this need to be nice, this need to be perfect, and never say the wrong thing or never mess up. And you just can't, <laughs> that's not going to happen on this journey, because you are going to mess up, you are going to say the wrong thing, and you have to be willing to stay open. So mm -hmm. yeah, thanks for those. Yeah, Hannah, do you you're like, nodding away over there? Do you do you want to add anything to that? No, I just I'm so glad we're having this conversation. And I'm just always so appreciative to be in this space with Izu. Um, for me as a white woman, the way that I've tried to decolonize myself, education is such a big part of it for me, because if we've been socialized into this 
white supremacist, patriarchal, capitalist society, then there's got to be a way back. And for me, that is really intentional learning. And Izu's heard me say this so many times, but I set aside 30 minutes every day to do my education work because I see it as like, you know, we're all, whether we want to admit or not, we are products of our education system, where we went to school, what we learned around the kitchen table. And for most white people, that's just mainly whiteness, right? What we get from media. So it takes a concerted effort to rewind, basically start from the beginning, not just learning about oppression like Izu was sharing, but getting a full picture. And that really takes time and it's very nuanced. And it's not just like, hey, I read how to be an anti-racist or I read um, Me and White Supremacy. Those are great books. And it's not just like, I watched 13th on Netflix. It takes such intentional decolonizing work in mind, body, and spirit. And that journey looks different for every person. It, you know, only I know kind of what my history was and everyone has their own unique journey. So it's not about your upbringing was so flawed and you should feel guilty. It's just understanding if you can't have a general acceptance of the fact that we live in white supremacy, then I almost don't even know where to start (laughs) with you because Mm -hmm. that's such a, a foundation. It's not saying it to be pejorative. It's not saying it to be blaming, shaming, um, finger pointing. It's just the reality of that. So starting there, if you can't get there, and I'm assuming most of your listeners are there if they're white. Um, but if you can't get there, then I think Izu and I are probably not the right people for you to, to work with or to chat mm-hmm. with. Um, but it's just such there's so much a rebuilding of foundation that we need to do as white people with everything like media, education, dialogue, conversation, ways of thinking. We need to to basically break the foundation. So I, like I said, that journey looks different for everyone and it just takes time. So have patience with yourself yeah. and recognize that you said that there's no graduation. I feel so lost sometimes and so confused. And I realized just sitting in the complexity and the nuance of it is part of the journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I, I love how you said there's got to be a way back. There's got to be a way back. If we got here, like we got here somehow, there's got to be a way back and we might have to go way, way, way back. And like you said, it's a, it's a daily practice. It's a daily commitment and it's an ongoing lifetime journey, but um, I really do believe that there is a way back. And, you know, no one knows exactly what it'll look like when we've quote unquote decolonized, right? There's no like clear finish line and what that will look like. What does that mean when we've decolonized? But it doesn't mean we shouldn't work towards it anyway. Um, and just understanding and making peace with the fact that it's, it's yeah, it's an ongoing journey. Um, and we all are going to have blind spots, Um and myself included in that, like I always say, as a as a mixed ancestry person, as a as a white presenting person, um, there are always new things that I'm learning, especially from black and brown um, people in the global majority. And one thing that I learned from both of you was um, about digital blackface. So I wondered if we could just tell everyone a little bit about that, because I have a feeling I, I know for a fact a lot of people are doing this um, and not understanding that it's harmful. 
Well, we've all seen examples of this. And basically what it is, is when white people or non-Black people use gifts or memes of Black people to show their emotions on social media. It's not the same as like sharing a video that features a Black person. It's like sharing a meme or a gif of Nini Leaks, you know, who to, to express attitude or to express shock or surprise. And we write in the book that we, and we share in the course for anti-racist entrepreneurs. This is something that's done so casually by white people. Like I see white people do it pretty much every single day on Instagram that goes unnoticed and unchecked because I think people don't see it as connected to a larger issue, which is that we are using Black people's likeness for entertainment and reducing them to these stereotypes, all while they aren't granted the same access to the breadth of expression through gifts and memes and in real life as we as white people are. Yeah, very well explained. Thank you. And yeah, it's the um, the TikTok audios, especially in the, the real audios, that is something that um, I have done in the past. And honestly, like I felt um, as I was doing it, I kind of had that intuition, like, is this okay? Or is this kind of feels like maybe not okay. And I did it anyway. And that was a couple of years ago, but still I did it anyway. And so I just want to remind everyone listening, if you have that, and usually your intuition knows, if you have that questioning feeling of like, "Mm, this maybe does feels off, but I'm going to do it anyway. Don't do it. Like you already know, um, so much of what's okay and what's not okay, but you just choose to do it anyway, because you know, there's not going to be any consequences for you. Um, so yeah, that that's a big one. And that's one that I see all the time is the TikTok audios. Like you said, it's reducing um, and it, and it's, it's like speaking in ways or, you know, like lip syncing and um, pretending to speak in ways or sing in ways that you normally wouldn't, that aren't you at all, um, that are like stereotypes of Black culture and yeah, reducing, dehumanizing people, reducing them to stereotypes um, and taking it for your own gain. So to me, it feels really similar to cultural appropriation. Um, Like it is cultural appropriation and it's just, um, yeah, understandably so very hurtful. So it's something that I have stopped doing and I hope everyone listening will stop doing. Yeah, I think it's also just to give a context uh, because technology and entertainment is evolving and the way we entertain today is not the same way as we entertained before we have to understand that like because we haven't um successfully gone came out of a white supremacist uh, society these things where we want to ridicule dehumanize uh use and abuse the likeness of minority groups is still present it just presents differently And so being able to understand that is what really is going to get you to see it. And I don't, I don't think that like, I don't, I don't think that some people feel and know that they're doing something. Some people are are completely this. And, and the point is like, not really, it's not like you should have an intuition. It's more like when people are saying that it's weird or like it's racist or stop, just do that like mm-hmm. it's I think that a lot of the time people that do want to be part of an active like um 
like addressing racism and oppression is learning how to take criticism with grace and learning how to digest things and accept accept and um the same way as when you know as as women we say when we talk about uh, you know i use this so much because i think that it's like something where if white people don't seem to understand at least we understand what something else like uh you know um feminism is right and so when when women say this is not nice stop doing that we are now c- coming to t- to turn with the fact that like women know what they're saying and we've come with the word as men's planning when a man wants to like tell you something that you know better as a woman and so it's the same thing with people of color or minority groups where they're just like we don't like this because this is problematic and also this is the history we would know better because we just inherently understand how things are connected and we've seen how things are have evolved and so accepting that is like I think the should be the baseline when you want to become part of a solution and part of like on your journey of becoming an an, an ally um mm. so I think that's like the most important part but uh digital blackface is just what's actually now but we had actual blackface uh, mm-hmm. at some point where people were literally putting like paint black paint on their face and mimic and mock black people so it's just the same thing but it's presented differently and like learning how to understand how things can like shift is where you catch yourself doing something that might be questionable you know um but yeah, definitely the voices and the the memes and also the reality that all these people are being literally used and TikTok does not pay and does not like uh, give the money that is due to these people that become like basically on making the culture. Like anything that's cool, relevant, trendy on social media in any platform come from black culture, come from like black vernacular, comes from uh, the jokes that exist in black spaces. Like it all comes from black people. And so it's disheartening to also realize that like no one is getting paid. So there are some, Mm -hmm. a lot of people are making a lot of money. No one is getting paid. And also you're just mocking. And again, we we fall into this, like once again, dehumanization and abuse and um, taking advantage of a people that's been historically known to be taken advantage of yeah and more yeah absolutely yeah and you're right there I think there are super ignorant people who genuinely don't even they don't know at all that it's wrong um I guess in my world uh, I do attract a lot of people who are at least at the point that they recognize there's a problem and they want to do better but something I hear all the time is people saying like oh yeah, I was at this, you know, this yoga retreat, or I was at this um, event and they were, they were kind of like appropriating indigenous culture. Like they started waving around the sage and they were sort of chanting and drumming and it felt, it felt icky. It didn't feel right. But did they leave the class? No. Did they say something? No. They, so they had that, they know it's wrong, but they didn't do anything. Um, Mm. So for those of you that are like that and you're listening, please take accountability and know when you need to, you know, when you need to say something or when you need to correct something that you see that's not right, because it's not our job all the time to correct those things. Hmm. Emily, you bring up such a good point that 
people notice and they want to give themselves credit for noticing and awareness is the first step. Yes. But there's no glory in noticing and not doing anything. It doesn't give you any points. And is it hard to speak (laughs) up? Is it hard to challenge authority? Is it hard to challenge your friends? Is it hard to be the squeaky wheel in a group? Yeah, it is. It's not easy. But what are we risking as white people? Our discomfort. It's okay. People of color risk their lives. So reframing it like that, I think can be helpful for people who are aspiring towards allyship, but yeah, you know, awareness, I was there, I was there in my journey too. Oh, okay. I'm finally noticing I'm seeing things. Maybe I'm pointing them out, you know, but that is not where we should stop. That is like step zero, I think. Yeah. And then being brave enough to speak up. Actually, no, we're not going to use the word brave, having accountability <laughs> to speak up, right? Um, Mm -hmm. and if that's hard for you, that's where community comes in. We're not supposed to do this alone. You know, there's not supposed to be any white heroes or anything. We're, We're not advocating for that. Sometimes you will be the only person, but if, if it's scary for you, grab a friend, like talk to somebody, even if there's two people that can have such a big impact. Like I remember when I was working in corporate America, disrupting systems in corporate America is and felt extremely difficult. But there was one instance where there was a really toxic situation going on. And there was kind of this like whisper network between women where we were able to communicate and meet in a safe space. We had to kind of like feel each other out, suss each other out. And then we literally wrote up a plan and went to the powers that be to talk about the issue. I had actually already gone to the person in charge to talk about this issue. And I was pretty much dismissed and um, not believed. But when I had four other women by my side, things happen a lot faster. And I'm not, I'm obviously like not going into details because I don't think I could really talk about it, but you guys understand my point. If it feels scary to speak up on your own, but you know, something's wrong and you know that you should speak up, talk to other people, get your people together, create a community. That's really, to me, what Kinswoman is all about. Mm-hmm. I have to comment on the fact that, like, we're talking about, you know, uh, how white people have to, like, learn to stand up and speak up and act on the things that they're seeing. And, you know, like, earlier I was saying how white supremacy does affect people on a personal level, like, white people specifically. And I think one of the biggest things that, like, I know white supremacy has also been super successful at is like really um, since the idea of a good white person is like nice, compliant, quiet, specifically women in like in context it's like you know if you want to be a good woman you have to be quiet you have to be respect you you know, have to be like respectful you have to you know not talk too loud not make a fuss not make you know like the proper idea of what a lady is is actually a white supremacist idea that feeds into you not being able to not even stand up for yourself like forget standing up for me standing up for yourself because that's how you we end up seeing polls True. where white american women vote into things that hurt them and hurt their community so that's why i'm saying like 
for me, when we talk about these things, it's I don't even have to talk about what we need. It's like, what do you have to change for yourself? Because obviously it's going to have a ripple effect. You now have, the, if you are aware of these things and if you ad- address these things, then you're showing up even for yourself. If it's not because you care about BIPOC and minority groups, it's because you care about yourself and what you are experiencing in society. And it's just like, white women are not even equal to white men. Like they're not even equal to white men and they don't benefit from white supremacy. Well, they do, they do a hundred percent do, but also they, there's so much, there's so much uh, work in it that makes them feel like they want to vouch for their, their white men and not be there for themselves. And so participate in showing up for others. And so that's why I'm saying like, sometimes you have to address on your own, what is, how is white supremacy showing up and how is it having an effect on your life and obviously it's going to have an effect on like how you act how you're going to vote how you're going to see the world how you're going to like address things and so this thing of thinking that speaking up when you have never experienced what oppression is is bravery is mad (laughs) it is mad but it comes from the idea that you've been indoctrined in thinking that to be a good person to be a good woman you have to be quiet and you have to be um uh like fall in line and that has been helping white supremacy and that's been hurting white women in so many and has been hurting obviously BIPOC community and so like that's what I was I meant earlier and that's that's how we have to see things instead of instead of having this conversation that comes up a lot where it's like you need to help me like as a black woman I learned from the beginning since I'm a child how to speak up for myself I've I've had to because of circumstances because I grew up in in a society where I would like it was just against me instead of for me and so like I know that I can speak up for myself when things are not well but as we come together in order to have like a support from white women and white people they have to they have to realize how it's hurting how it's like playing for them you know what I mean so yeah yeah Definitely, definitely. White white women definitely benefit from white supremacy, but it, it is hurting them too. It's hurting us all. Um, and it's that, yeah, that that pressure to just fall in line and be perfect and be kind and, and not speak out and and stay. Yeah, like it, I struggle with saying like women are oppressed by the patriarchy because they are. But the problem is when women only see that, they only see the gender lens, they only see like the white feminism, right? It's really, really harmful. They see the ways that they're oppressed by men, but not the ways in which they are oppressing um, black, brown, and indigenous women. Um, but anyway, that's a that's like, we could be here for another few hours talking about this, I'm sure. But I don't want to, um, I don't want to take up any more of, uh, and too much more of your time. So to close out, um, what is, I guess, one thing you want listeners to know particularly white women um who are listening i know that's kind of like a loaded question but if you could leave us with one thing what would you each say i would say that it starts like izu said on the interpersonal level focusing on major societal structures and systems can feel very disenfranchising and disempowering 
but we have so much power as individuals and we have massive networks that our actions impact with the ripple effect. So even just having one conversation, even if it's just with yourself, in our book, Real Friends Talk About Race is all about having those hard conversations. If there are hard conversations you're avoiding about one thing, then conversations on race are probably going to be really difficult for you. And here are some examples like money, sex, body, love, worthiness. What's your comfort level with those topics? Building up capacity for having hard conversations will help you in every area of your life. It's going to be really hard to address race and racism in yourself and in your community if you don't have a capacity for discomfort. So that's what I would leave white women listeners with. And it's something that I'm still working through every day. Getting comfortable with the discomfort, taking one action and having faith that what you're doing does make a difference. Thank you. Yeah. Izu? I think that the 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 one thing that I want to, I want white women to take away is that uh, in my harsh words or in my harsh uh, truths, I do carry a lot of hope and it's meant to empower people in a way that is specific in themselves. It's It means that like, if you address things for yourself, you have a bit of an impact and effect on your society and community. And thus I gain from it. Meaning like my children have a better chance of experiencing things I haven't experienced. And, and so that's kind of like how, why I still maintain hope. And I want people to understand that they have an individual uh, cap- capability of making a difference. Uh, but in all of this, I think that like what is really important to remember is like in this journey of wanting to be an ally and wanting to unpack the things uh, of like how it has affected you as a being in the society, um, I don't want people to expect BIPOC friends, family, um, intimate partners to absolutely accept everything that comes with that realization like all the all the um all the ickiness that comes from like unwrapping that like it is not the job of people that are the closest to you that are the first victims of these issues to accept everything and so making peace with the fact that you might lose friendships because you are you have a negative impact on on these people and so like that's I think is fundamental in regards to doing this work. It's like accepting that like some people are going to want to stay away from you or like some people might not be the ones that are going to give you the answers to the questions that you have and really finding where you can have these answers and who can be of a support. But not everyone that's a BIPOC person needs to be that person, if that makes sense. And um, just to just to give peace to people and get let them be as well, <laughs> mm-hmm. because uh, it's if it's hard for you, it is hella hard for us. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, 
thank you both so much for your time, for your energy, for all the education today. This was so, so value packed, so good. Um, I will put links in the show notes to all the places where people can find you. They can find your book. They can find your course, um, all of that. So I, yeah, I'll spare you from having to go through all that. We'll put it in all the notes. Um, but thank you both so, so much for this conversation and for being here. Thank you so much for having us, Emily. Thank you, Emily. Thanks for the work that you're doing. And thank you for also taking our course and providing such a beautiful testimonial. It's been an honor to get to know you. And thank you for having us on The Soul's Way. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you again so, so much for listening. If you would like to thank me in return, if you got any value, insights, new perspectives, or you just appreciated this episode or enjoyed this episode, the best way to thank a podcaster is to share with others. Spread the love, spread the magic, take a screenshot of the episode, share it on your Instagram or TikTok stories, and tag me at Emily Ann Brandt so I can personally thank you for tuning in and stay connected. This is truly a community that we are building here, and I love staying in connection with you. I look forward to talking to you again soon, and I'm sending you so much love and gratitude.